Chapter Twelve of Miss Frances Baird, Detective, by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kemp learns the truth. My impulse naturally was to get away and think things over, and also naturally the circumstances favored this inclination. I was hustled over to the Maples and bundled into my own room, where, as soon as I had convinced everybody that I was not even bruised worth speaking about. I was allowed to be alone. Here, indeed, was a pretty kettle of fish. Francis Baird, a detective, if you please, sentimental enough to fall in love at all, foolish enough to fall in love during business hours, and mad enough to fall in love with a man whose stolen love letters from another woman were then in my possession, a man whom I knew to have committed theft and murder for the sake of that other woman, and finally, a man whose arrest I must cause by six o'clock the next evening if I didn't want to starve to death. And he must be guilty. I had positive evidence of the strongest double motive for the crime, love and greed. I had heard his own lips suggest the possibility of the theft. I knew that he had lied in regard to his strange absence from the house immediately after the murder. And I knew that he alone had had the requisite opportunity. Yes, I knew it. And hardly anybody else. Indeed, nobody but he and I knew positively that a murder had been committed it was our secret. The incident of the key, as I had represented it to Kemp, would still any doubts which I might have awakened in the mind of Mr. Watkins. The conviction rushed upon me with sudden overmastering certainty. I had only to hold my tongue and destroy those letters, and though they might arrest Lawrence for theft, nobody would ever know that there had been a murder. Pretty, wasn't it? And then, if the theft was not proved against Fredericks, I should virtually be handing him over to tomboy Evelyn. That I would not do. He should hang first. I rang the bell and sent for Kemp, who came, his small black eyes gleaming, his whole nasty little body breathing self-satisfaction. He was evidently sure of his man. "'Awfully glad to hear you weren't hurt, Miss Baird,' he said. "'Thank you,' said I but we've business to attend to. Sit down. He obeyed. As you know, I pursued, I've been to town. And seen the chief? That is what I went there for. Oh, well, come now, Miss Baird. You needn't be so rough on me just because Watkins was mad. What did he say? As a matter of fact, he was not half so angry as he should have been. I shouldn't have called it anger at all. Puff! As to that, he never does show it. And he decided to allow me— I put a good deal of emphasis on that personal pronoun, to remain in charge of this case. Now, I continued, rehearsing the story I had told him after Frederick's return the night before, as I have already informed you, I stayed up there where you left me with the body, until I thought I heard somebody downstairs. I went down and ran into Bromley, whom I told some fairy story or other, went back, got nervous, went down again, and ran into, what's his name? Frederick's. That's my story. What I want you to do is to tell me what happened in the meantime last night, and what happened today. Kemp could never tell a straight story. At my request for one, he now literally writhed. Nothing happened here last night, he said, except what you know. Oh, come, come. After you left me, you went back to the gift room, didn't you? Yes. Who was there? Everybody but Bromley and Fredericks, of course. How did they seem? When I told them about the suicide— no, not yet. When you told them about the robbery. Well, you saw how the old man took it. Mrs. Deneen was fighting mad over it by the time I got back. 
wanted every servant in the house arrested right away, and the servants themselves were in a blue fit. They were so frightened. Later I searched them all right there. There are six of them in the house, and four in the stables that I saw today, and before they had a chance to get back to their rooms I searched those too. But of course there wasn't anything to be found. And then you told them that the boy was dead? Yes, Mrs. Deneen threw a fit right there, and the old man he fainted. And when the others, I mean all except Mr. Deneen, learned that you were a detective, how did they act? Just exactly as you might expect them to if they were honest men and women. One and all of them, from the madam down, seemed to think it was mighty lucky I was right on the ground. And what has happened today? Well, we got the coroner over as soon as I'd completed my investigations. I didn't want any rubes button in till I'd done my work. He took charge of the suicide, and I suppose his doctor'll be along presently to make the usual examination. Poor James seems to have made a thorough job of it, as I said. Used a knife, it seems, that he always kept lying open on his writing desk. Well, then, the two country detectives, a fellow named Laird and a fellow named Thompson, got to work on the robbery. They started out all wrong, of course, and went through the servants and their quarters with a fine-tooth comb, and all no use. Every one of them had a couple of others to account for his or her whereabouts, and not a shred of evidence to be found in their rooms. Then they came to me at last, and I set them straight. Now they're willing to work under me, and are really doing pretty well. They are good enough fellows, just a little stupid, that's all, and need a clear head to direct them, even in a case that's as plain as a— But I cut short this exhibition of vanity. And what, I asked, has been your progress in the right direction? Well, our man's a sharp one, I've got to admit that. In the first place, he was not the sort of a fool to run away. Not much. When he came in last night, he was really cut up about the suicide. As well he might be. And then and there he played a trump card. He said he'd stay right here, if he might, and be of what assistance he could in their affliction. So he remains. What about the other two? Stenger and Remington? Oh, they're not the kind to hunt trouble. They got back to town as fast as they could. And did you look into the question of their whereabouts at the time of the theft? Yes, of course I did. I thought I remembered seeing them dance the last dance just before I came up, and found you there with the imitation jewels. An inquiry showed that my memory was all right, so that lets them out. But I tell you, Miss Baird, and Kemp waved a neat little hand, as if to dismiss every theory of the case but his own pet one, there's no need, except for form's sake, in looking into anybody's doings but one person's. This thing's so simple that I almost hate to work on it. It's almost a waste of time. Then you've talked with your man? No, I didn't want to do that until I got on the track of the jewels. And right there, last night, I had a lucky thought. It occurred to me that the man who stole the real ones must have taken the false ones, too. What? Sure. It was this way. If, when Fredericks was accused of the theft by Deneen, he found Deneen knew the real ones had been replaced by fake ones, then he must have seen that what one man had discovered others might discover, too. Now his original plan had been that the substitution wouldn't be found out until the wedding gift had been turned over and worn by the bride, until there were so many opportunities of stealing it, that is, that no one could tell just when it had been stolen. But if that scheme wasn't working, if the fake had been found out right away, why everyone in the place, outside of the family, would be looked up, and it would be an easier matter to find out who, of so few, had a chance to have fake ones made. In other words, this was a turn of events that was calling attention rather too closely to him. So after he left Anine, left him, in fact, to commit suicide, Fredericks just went back and stole the fake ones that he'd put in the gift room only a few minutes before. 
but then he must know that Denine would become morally certain of his guilt. What does a thief care about moral certainties? It's legal certainties he's looking out for, and by removing the fakes Fredericks would be, as things had turned out, removing as well one chance for a legal certainty. His original tools had turned out to be evidence against him, and so he removed the evidence. Well, and what was the result of your having this new idea last night? The result was, as soon as I could, I got the old man aside, and without explaining matters enough to give him any real knowledge to betray me, I had him cork up on the fact that there had really been two thefts, so that now nobody but he and the police and the thief knew of that fact. Oh, how clever! But the man didn't detect my irony, so I went on. Does Fredericks know you suspect him? Kemp threw out his little chest. Do I look like a fool? he demanded. To my mind he looked like a very good imitation of one, but it would have been poor policy to mention it, so I merely pursued. And the jewels, you haven't got on their track? Not yet. Well, of course, the thief will have a squad at work with every fence and pawn-shop in town, not to mention the work done by the headquarters men. And then the description will be telegraphed everywhere. But what is your theory about them? That he took those jewels and hid them somewhere right on these grounds, trusting to get away with them the next day. He hadn't time for anything else. I've had the house and the servants searched thoroughly, I tell you, but I didn't expect any results, and didn't get any. Then you don't think Fredericks was met by an accomplice? No, for when a swell goes queer, he doesn't know any crooks to get to help him, and he wouldn't trust anybody of his own class. That was true, but I remembered the man in Colorado, and determined to telegraph the Denver police to find out whether he was still at that mining camp in the San Juan. But you have inquired whether Fredericks had ever a chance to have an imitation made? In a quiet way, yes. The old man hadn't an idea what I was getting at, but I found out from him that the only time the jewels were anywhere out of his sight, except when they were in bank, was once last year when young Jim fooled his father, got an order on the safe deposit vault, and hiked the diamonds off to New Haven, where they were used in a college play, and worn by this very fellow Fredericks, who was playing a woman's role. I whistled. With what I already knew, this seemed to clinch matters. Then, said I, all we have to do is find a New Haven or New York man who made the false set. There can't be more than one man in New Haven who could do it, and I doubt if there are over half a dozen in New York. I've done that already, said Kemp, with a fresh touch of pride and an approach to mysterious importance. I wired the New Haven police this morning. And what did they say? For answer, Kemp flourished a slip of white paper with the familiar blue-printed heading. I took it and read, J. W. Gottschalk, this city, made set answering your description, May 2nd, this year, for L. Fredericks. Kensel, Chief Police. I got up and went to the window, because I did not precisely care that this little rat of a detective should just then see my face. He had snatched away the last straw to which I had clung, for, down in my heart, I had kept on hoping that, though I did not doubt Frederick's guilt myself, Kemp, at least, would never be able to prove it. But now he had the man. To make out a prima facie case, he did not even have to find the jewels. There was already enough to warrant an arrest, enough to defeat habeas corpus proceedings, enough to pass a grand jury. Once a man is that far on the way to penal servitude, the rest, if he is guilty, is pretty sure to come out and with such a start, and such a man as Kemp had thus far proved himself to be, in the way of a bloodhound, 
Oh, I had to grant him that. Lawrence's chances were slim, indeed. If, in addition to what my friend knew, he were to get from me the other facts. Two persons, moving toward the house along a bypath that must have been hidden from any other point, caught my eye. They were Evelyn Bladesdell and Lawrence. His head was bared, and I could see the narrow bandage about it that marked the wound he had received in rescuing me. But I did not think of that. I couldn't. The only thing I could think of was what expressed itself but too plainly in the slow gait of the couple, in the manner in which he was leaning over her, and in the simpering face she turned up towards his. And young Deneen was at that very moment lying murdered, not a hundred yards away. I turned to Kemp. "'Mr. Kemp,' I said, and I spoke rapidly, for I could hardly get my words past the lump in my throat, and was afraid, too, that if I didn't speak at once I should change my mind again. "'I owe you an apology. You have shown yourself a far cleverer man than I supposed you to be. I—I I admire you, and I am ashamed that, in order to try and keep all for my own the credit that we ought really to share equally, I've been holding back from you something that happened last night.' He began to listen with his face alight with smiles. He ended by staring at me blankly. "'Kept something from me?' he repeated. "'Yes, or lied to you, if you prefer to put it that way.' "'What was it?' "'You remember that key?' "'The one to Deneen's door? The one you found in his room?' "'Exactly. Only after you had gone I found that you hadn't been careful enough in trying it in his lock. It really didn't belong to that door at all.' "'Then whose did it belong to?' oh i don't know what's the difference it was evidently only an odd key and has no significance in the case the point is that i found the real key to his room later outside the door in the hall a woman never confesses the whole truth indeed what man does for that matter and this was as near as i could bring myself to owning up but it had the desired effect on kemp he nearly bounded out of his chair I am forced to grant that he was even too enthusiastic at my discovery to blame me for withholding it so long. "'Why, then,' he whispered, "'it's—it's it's murder!' I bowed my head silently and turned again to the window. Lawrence Fredericks was just below. He raised his fair head, caught sight of me, and bowed. The next moment I wheeled on Kemp with hysterical tears. "'Go! Now go!' I cried, literally pushing him out of the room. I, I can't talk a bit more. Go, go, go! End of chapter 12